In that, I think God has a word for us through Ephesians that will line up and we'll see how he connects the rest of those dots. So Patrick is going to come and read from Ephesians chapter 1, one of the richest and most powerful prayers ever prayed. So we might need to hear that today. Thanks for reading. All right, so this morning's scripture passage is Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Uh, if you've got one of the Pew Bibles, that's on page 976. Um, the whole section under the heading, Thanksgiving and Prayer. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith. Actually, let me let you turn there. <laughs> okay. Um, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in, your pr- in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I know you're looking and you see a long list of scriptures and so you're timing this out already and you're looking at your clock and God is going to do what he always does and redeem time and maximize it. So we, uh, we trust you, Lord, for that. Have you ever heard the term prayer warrior? If you look up in a Bible dictionary, you'll probably see a face of Paul at least a sketch to our best idea of Paul. He's truly a prayer warrior. At the end of Ephesians is that famous picture, metaphor of the spiritual warrior, and Paul talks about the armor that we are to put on for the battle that we are fighting. At the end of that, in Ephesians 6, verse 18, Paul exhorts the church, pray at all times, with all kinds of prayers and requests. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance and make supplication for all the saints and also for me. His prayers and his exhortations sound so similar throughout his writings. He exhorted the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and following, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. By the way, that's the shortest verse in the Bible. You'll argue with me. It's not John eleven thirty-five. There are less Greek letters in that verse. But the verses and the numbers came way later, later anyway, so what does it matter? What matters? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And we heard in this passage, thank you, Patrick, where Paul says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
Noticing a theme here? So how is your prayer life? I don't know how many times I've been asked that and probably have asked it myself, but in reminding and rereading these prayers and these words, it makes me think we should rephrase that slightly. How is your life of prayer? Because that's what Paul is arguing, that the whole of life is one of prayer, awareness of and communication with a personal living God. Now that's all of life. How is, how is that going? And the answer, I guess, would probably be the same for both questions. I've got some room to grow. And that will always be the case. I think the people that I would consider prayer warriors in my life for me, for our church, are ones that are the first to say, oh, my prayer life is so weak. It's as if we just can't grow enough. And that's not to, meant to be a burden. It's meant to be a hope in there is so much more for God and in God. And so we long for and we pray, Lord God, help us. Help us, we pray. And yet this isn't a sermon about prayer. And yet if rightly received, it can transform our life of prayer. So may we receive it and receive Paul's words and prayers even for us today. We do have a handful of his recorded prayers in Scripture, and I want to just read a few of them. I've hand-selected kind of the primary prison prayers. Uh, He wrote a number of letters while he was in prison in Rome, uh, and Ephesians is one of them, and Philippians and Colossians will be the other two letters that I'll read from his recorded written prayers. I just want you to hear them kind of all together. You can turn there if you want, or you can just let me read, uh, read them to you, but hear, look, hear and listen for themes. I think they jump off the page as they're so similar as he writes to these churches in different contexts with different needs. He prays the same way. And so I do believe he prays the same way, inspired through the Spirit for all the church, even one 2,000 years later around the world, meeting on this little hill on this corner, he prays for us. So here are these prayers, the one we've heard, uh, already read, and then I'll read from Ephesians 3, then Philippians, then Colossians. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus And your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with his power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Philippians 1.9, he kind of begins his letter to the church in Philippi this way. It is my prayer 
that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And this last one in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, again beginning his letter with this prayer. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Did you hear? Hopefully that just washed over you in some ways. They'd be good prayers to put on a list somewhere, a review and pray through, and Lord, help us, Lord, teach us. Paul's prayers, perhaps Paul's prayers more than his prose reveal his purpose and his passion in his life and ministry. Those same themes, glory, strength, power, filling, hope in the promises of God, hope in the strength and fullness that God provides through Jesus in the Spirit. Perhaps, though, the most striking, I think you probably heard it again and again with various words, was Paul's prayer that the church would know God. Seven times in these four famous prayers, Paul prays that they would know God, that they would know the love of Jesus Christ, that they would know his hope, his riches, his power. And that's not even tallying all of the other synonymous words in there. Wisdom, revelation, enlightenment, comprehension, discernment, understanding. The most pervasive and consistent prayer of Paul's for the church is that they would know God. If we're going to make an application for prayer, and we'll get there, what is the most pervasive and consistent part of our prayers that we would know God that others might know him and maybe God would use us to help others know him we notice what Paul does pray for we notice maybe by asking the reverse question what he is not praying for for the church. Now, he prayed at all times with all kinds of prayers and requests. So I think there's room for that. But as he writes out his prayers, what does he not pray? He is not praying for God to give them material things. That didn't show up anywhere. Though God is the provider and sustainer of all material things, Paul's prayer is for spiritual discernment, spiritual eyes and perception In none of these prayers is Paul asking God to give them something that they do not have. God is, Paul is praying for God to reveal and make known to them what is already theirs because of who he is and what he has done. And we're again reminded, and I think it's an important reminder of who Paul's audience was. He is writing and praying for, writing to, exhorting the church. 
believers. He's writing to people who believe, follow Jesus, who, who know God at least to some degree, but he's writing and pouring out his heart that they would know him more, more and more fully. I do believe the superlative is easily justified in this case, that there was nothing more important for Paul than this, that people would come to know God and know him more fully. And Paul's theology and his experience taught him that to truly know God, to truly see him, would mean to love him, would result in trusting him. It would result in obeying him. And just as Jesus had said it, if you love me, you will obey me. That's, that order is vitally important. J.I. Packer wrote a famous book now, Knowing God, this great, more modern-day theologian. And he said this in his book, those who know God have great energy from God, great thoughts of God, great boldness for God, and great contentment in God. If you want that quote, I can get that to you rather than repeat it. I just say yes, please, to all of the above. We have made it our aim, and we continue to make it our aim every time we gather. Why are we here? Why are we here in this context? Why do we sing? Why do we read Scripture? Why do we preach? Why do we pray? Why do we come to the Lord's table? Why do we exhort to give and give generously? All for this purpose, that we would come to know God more and more fully. Therefore, come to love Him, trust Him, and obey Him. It's the whole of our spiritual life. Pastor Warren Wearsby, I've been reading his commentaries, as have so many over the years. I've been reading one for Ephesians. He passed away last week, just shy of his 90th birthday. So Warren, as much as people in heaven are conscious, and we don't know how that goes, but enjoy paradise, and we'll see you soon. Thank you, Warren, for your gift to us in the love and pursuit of God. He said this, and I have this quote up here on the screen, to know God personally is salvation. To know God increasingly is sanctification. To know God perfectly is glorification. In the meantime, because we'll never come to fully know him, we're in a pursuit of him. We're on our own God hunt. I love that past, present, and future tense of our faith, all centered on coming to know who God is and what he has done. Just to capture a few verses for each one, or maybe one or two verses for each one, to know God personally is salvation. Well, John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and they would know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know God is salvation. That's what Jesus said. To know him increasingly is sanctification. It's a process of becoming more like him, of becoming more holy. And Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 8, remember, this is toward the end, the very end of his life, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss except the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And later he says, not that I have already obtained all this. I, I, I'm, I'm just beginning in some ways is what Paul is saying. But I would press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Perfectly, 
to know him perfectly is glorification. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly this picture of just not quite, I see the reflection, I see some, but it's, it's hazy. That's our, that's our spiritual perception now is what Paul is saying. But one day we will see him face to face with no barrier, with no veil, no, no reflection, but just as he is. Now I only know in part, Paul says, but then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. This is our one day hope for the knowledge of God in our glorification. And if Paul is praying for the church, then aren't these prayers for us today? If the Holy Spirit inspired these words for the church, not just the church in Ephesus, but the church everywhere, then is not the same eternal Spirit inspiring these same prayers for the church of all time in all places? And so we receive and we need that reminder because sometimes we engage with this text as if it's just a history book. And it, though it does describe historical events, we need to see the spiritual connection. Yes, Ephesus, that city, that church that met there, feels like about as far removed as you could get from us today, geographically, culturally, politically, chronologically. And yet when we look more closely, we see the comparisons that are right for us to remember as we study this letter, that we look and we see and we study that what, what we know of Ephesus, that at that time and that place was a cutting-edge, leading, enlightened, spiritual, affluent port city. Hmm. We see that they valued the arts and the entertain, and entertainment, education and enlightenment, diversity and tolerance, and the free pursuit of personal pleasure. They were a people striving for riches and power, accustomed to worldly wealth and wonders. Hmm. God wanted his church in Ephesus. He loved that city. And while he did amazing things in that city and helped transform and influence even the culture and, and society and economics, over the course of time, largely the church was dismissed and ignored. If only we could relate. Hasn't God planted his church right where he wants it because he loves this city? And I'm not saying just Union Hill Church, though his favor and his sustaining grace has been amongst God's people here for nearly nine decades. But his church in the greater Seattle area because he loves this city and Paul would be praying for the church on the east side and he'd be praying for us even Union Hill Church and the saints within you and me, believers, followers of Jesus who have come to know God, Paul would be praying that we would know him more, that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we would know hope, that we would know riches, that we would know power. These things that are already ours because of who God is and what he has done, Paul would be praying that for us, so may we join him. May we receive and pray that same prayer, Lord, that I would know you more fully. It's okay to take these prayers in Scripture and to make them personal. Receive them, that I would know you more fully. Lord, open the eyes of my heart, and you can add your heart to that. Lord, I feel like I, know, I don't see you. I see you so dimly. What is it? Why? Where are you? 
Is it me? Or have you just not yet revealed what you're doing in the midst of this? Lord, I want to know the hope to which I've been called. And you know that hope in the Scriptures is not some childlike hope for a pony, something that maybe probably will never come to be, but hope is assurance. Right? Faith is being certain of what we hope for, Hebrews 11.1. 1. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I'll skip a couple verses, very good verses. That we would know riches, the riches that are already ours. Lord, help me know and be able to clearly discern the difference between what the world calls wealth and what you say is wealth. There's a funny play on words here that's uh, maybe, maybe intentional by Paul. I think often uh, he has an intentionality in that writing, but I also believe the Holy Spirit has the intentionality over and above that. But you can't translate this phrase, the riches of his inheritance. We, can't, we don't fully know whether that means the riches of God's inheritance toward us, because that theme is taught in Scripture of what we will one day inherit. It's not yet today, but it's set, it's promised And so one day we will fully experience it. As Jesus said, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, but in heaven there is a a not yet one day coming of that inheritance. And yet that phrase, the riches of his glorious inheritance may not be what we receive, but maybe what Christ receives. That we are actually considered the riches of Christ's inheritance. What God the Father has promised to give Christ one day in fullness. In fact, contextually, I might even be convinced that that is the primary reason, the primary translation, and yet they are both true. And what are riches ultimately? If we were to discern the difference between worldly riches and the trapping pursuits that all of us struggle with, whether we know earthly riches and say they don't satisfy and yet find ourselves trapped with a pursuit of more, or whether we don't nearly know them the way that our neighbors do and yet we're trapped by a longing and desire that we will be the one person different, that if, we've, if we truly had a taste and experience of this kind of wealth that we see around us, I will be fulfilled, I will be satisfied. And yet they are empty and so both can be trapped. And so, Lord, help us discern as we look to what riches are, what are truly spiritual riches, having no want, having no lack. And that's what God says you have. You have no want or no lack in Christ. And regardless of how we translate that, because your riches are secure. You are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that is mine will be shared with you is what God the Father is saying to his children. Or whether we are the riches of Christ's inheritance, if we are that loved, if we are seen by God the Father that way, that there is nothing greater that could be given to Jesus Christ the Son than his people. What other want and what other lack do we have? May we know his riches, the riches that are already ours. May we know how he sees us and views us and that we might know him. And may we know his power. I should say, 
I'm only focusing on these three because this is what Paul chooses to write when he says, I want you to know God. He picks these three as examples of ways of knowing God. I want you to know the hope that you've been called to, to know the riches of his inheritance and to know his immeasurably great power toward you who believe. Truly, the ways of coming to know God, the blessings of him are infinite for he is infinite. But Paul calls out these three and so I am inclined to think there's something to them. May we know the immeasurable power of God toward us who believe. And I preached on this last week a little more. That power is a person in the Holy Spirit. The very same person who rose Jesus from the grave and ushered him to his seat in heaven is at work amongst us and will do the very same for us. He will bring what is dead to life again. And when these mortal bodies die on the day that God assigns for us, He, the Holy Spirit, ushers us to our eternal home and our resurrection bodies. Concepts that are almost too fantastic to get our minds around, but which are proclaimed throughout Scripture. May we know the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through us. Last week we looked at the fruit of the Spirit as evidence that the Spirit is at work. Things that we can't simply choose on our own or muster up. They must grow and bear in our life supernaturally. The other evidence that we see in Scripture of the Spirit's work through us is His gifts. And I'll just refer you to 1 Corinthians 12. I'll read verse 11, not the whole passage, as he talks, Paul talks about the various gifts of the Holy Spirit at work in and through his people as evidence that God's power is in you. He says, all of these gifts are empowered by the one and same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. And this would lead us to a great many conversations of the body at work being aware of the Spirit's presence and power in our unique giftings toward one another. But due to time, we will just be reminded that the Holy Spirit is the one who gifts and gives and empowers all, each one. And that these things, these fruits of the Spirit and these gifts of the Spirit are to be manifest evidence that something far greater than you and me is at play. And our world should take notice. Just as the world takes notice in hope. You know, when Peter says, I think this is a verse I skipped over, when Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask you for the reason, the, the hope that you have. We can take that and say, okay, I need to be ready. Okay, what will I say when someone asks? That's, that's actually, that's, well, it's, it could be helpful, but that's, that's the wrong emphasis of that verse. That's the wrong immediate application. The right immediate application is, is anyone asking me about the hope that is within me? Is the hope in me so evident that people are looking and going, how do you have hope in the midst of this? The context that Peter was writing in was pain and suffering. 
When our world's natural response, and really all of our natural response to pain and suffering is hopelessness and despair, when we have supernatural hope, not because we chose it when we woke up in the morning, but because the Holy Spirit's power is at work through us to remind us of who God is and what he's done. When we live with that kind of hope, it is like light in the darkness, and our world does not understand it. Some will rail against it because it agitates them to no end, and they believe it is false. Others will be drawn to it like a moth to the light. How are you doing this? How do you have this? Tell me more. And we don't really even have to think about our response as long as it is Jesus-focused. This is not of me. It's a power beyond me. that we would know God through his hope, that we would know God through his riches, that we would know God through his power. Paul knew his words weren't enough. And so I need to rightly join in with him, knowing that words are not enough. Prose is not enough. Do you know God this way? Do you know his hope? Do you know his riches? Do you know his power? The answer is no. We don't. We are, if at best, we are coming to know. And why would Paul pour out his heart without ceasing, with all kinds of prayers and requests, in prayer that we would know because words are not enough, because the only hope we have is the power of the Holy Spirit, the living God in and through us. And so I will join him as we pray to respond, and I invite you to do the same to see your life of prayer transformed. Not to say, I need to pray more, but to say, God, help us know you more. And he will transform our prayer life. As we come to sing praises, as we come to the table, as we come to give generously for the work that God is doing, we come in prayers with all kinds of prayers and requests. Be freed in that statement. There's not a right set of words to recite with all kinds of prayers and requests. We pour out our heart, often knowing that our prayers are not our own and the Holy Spirit must translate them. So I'll invite the team to come and help lead us in response as we sing prayers. So as I pray, would you join me as we are convicted and encouraged by Paul's words. Let me read the rest of that, or a little bit more of that passage as we close in Philippians 3, verse 8. Indeed, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We pray, Lord, help us consider everything else as lesser except for the surpassing worth, the greatest worth, the most important thing of all of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, as we sing these praises, make them prayers from our heart, convict us and encourage us. As we come to the table, we are reminded of what you have suffered for us. And so we join with Paul and say, for Christ's sake, We have suffered the loss of all things. We want to count them as rubbish in order that we might gain Christ and that we might know you and the power of your resurrection. We thank you, Jesus.
In your name and your will, we pray. Amen.